in the UK, um, home of Shakespeare, um, in the UK, theater is a right. So as a result, pricing was always very affordable. It was always approachable. You could always get a ticket to a West End show for 15 quid. That's been true before Today Ticks. It was true with Today Ticks. It's true today. Um, even the hottest shows in the West End, you can get an affordable ticket. In New York, theater has always been more of a luxury product. It's not to say that there aren't amazing access initiatives, but it's always been a little more elusive. And so Today Ticks has always tried to straddle that divide to offer. And, and remember, when we started, we were day of. A year later, we became week of. We now sell tickets a year out. We sell all price points. We sell uh, the most expensive ticket in the front row to the least expensive ticket, which might also be in the front row if it's through one of our lotteries or our rush programs. So everything we do is about working with the producer and the audience to figure out that sweet spot for demand and viability for the show. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All the fundraises, all the news. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Brian Fenty, who is the co-founder and CEO of Today Ticks. Today Ticks is a digital ticketing platform for theatrical and cultural events. We discuss the history of ticketing on Broadway, why Broadway wasn't doing a great job appealing to younger audiences, why during COVID they actually didn't pivot, even though live events stopped literally overnight, and what they did during COVID instead, as well as their acquisition strategy. This is a really fun one. Without further ado, here's Brian. Brian, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I am well in sunny London today. Oh, awesome. Sunny London. Love, lo love to hear that. Two words that never go together. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Love that rarity. That's great. That's great. Um, let's want to start from the very beginning. What was your introduction to the theater? And also, also I'm really curious about ticketing as well. Yeah, I was introduced to both of them sort of separately, um, as, as fate would have it. So as a kid in small town Connecticut, I wasn't very good at sports, uh, wasn't playing video games, and happened to be in a school play when I was like four years old. And it was twas the night before Christmas, and as a bit of a joke, they put me in a Santa Claus, a four-year-old as Santa Claus. And it was sort of transformative for me though, because I never really left the theater in my young adult life after that moment. It was sort of like a sports team in that you're with all these great people who are supporting you of all ages. They're coaching you, they're shaping you. And um, I ended up doing about 55 shows over the next 12 years um, and really fell in love wow. with theater. Um, I stopped it at that point, never did it again. Uh, but it was a deep love of theater for much of my childhood. Uh, that's amazing. And I think that, that what that it seems like one of the beautiful things is that maybe is that you were in shows, you were an actor, 
Um, but also then you, um, you, you also were involved on, I think like theater productions, if I'm not mistaken, and you were a producer. And so you were kind of all around the theater, um, throughout your entire, um, entire, your professional life. Yeah. It's the, the truth is, um, and I, I say this to you and your listeners, but the truth is I'm not a theater geek. I don't know everything about every show that's ever been written. Uh, you can't quiz me on the last great uh, Broadway musical and how it compares to the 1950 revival of it. But what I do know is that it's an incredibly powerful tool at every stage of your life. And that being fortunate enough to be living in this world and in great cities and in, the, and, and in America for me growing up there and having culture at my doorstep, the arts just were transformative for me and blew me away. So when I sort of grew up through college and through business and you asked where I learned about ticketing, I started working for the New York Yankees was my first job. And uh, that's a big world stage for ticketing. And uh, that journey um, really just always sat with me to, to come back and marry theater and art and culture with business. No, that, that makes, um, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and how, how did you end up meeting your, your co-founder Merritt? This is a very, uh, long time period, but a short story, which is we both met at theater camp in 1997 in upstate New York. Uh, he was from Florida. I was from Connecticut we happened to take a three-week acting class. Uh, I'll never forget it. And we then spent the next 20 years in on and off communication, but re-sort re of kindled our friendship in New York City as young adults. Um, I had just produced a Broadway show, Oleana, when I was 23, uh, with Bill Pullman and Julia Stiles, two performers who I loved. And I sort of viewed it as my MBA. It was my grad school. So instead of going to grad school, um, I was working private equity by day. And at night, I was producing Broadway shows. Um, and Merritt was at the time uh, working at Lazard and then at Viagogo, the ticketing company in London. And we sort of said, God, wouldn't it be great to join forces and figure out how we can marry this really wacky combination of theater, banking, investing, entrepreneurship, ticketing. And uh, that was the start of the relationship. That's awesome. That's, um, uh, that's amazing. And what was, what was the opportunity that you saw that eventually became um, City Ticks? And maybe just a brief overview in terms of how Broadway is organized and, um, and, what, and what ticketing was like maybe prior to uh, today ticks or, or obviously it's still going on, you know, um, uh, but, um, but what, what were you kind of seeing what, when it came to the opportunity? So when I produced Oleana, when I was 23, you'd sit in these things called ad meetings where the producers and the ad agencies and the theater owners would all sit around a big table and they'd talk about what the sales were and they'd talk about, you know, sort of like a business in, in a normal business, what like a trading meeting would be. And you go through how the business is performing. And invariably, there would be this awkward moment in every meeting where people would say, uh-oh, we're not getting younger audiences. We're not getting that younger audience. What do we do? And the answer was always drop the price and put it at the TKTS booth. And so I started thinking a lot about that TKTS booth. And I would walk in between um, 
the office that I was working at in private equity again by day and walking at night to these meetings. And I'd walk past the TKTS booth and I did a little homework and came upon the fact that the TKTS booth in like 800 or 900 square feet was selling well over a hundred, $150 million of tickets. And that number blew my mind that 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 little booth in Times Square where we made 3,000 customers an hour wait in snow, in rain, in hail, in heat to not even know what show they were going to get. And so that was sort of the epiphany that we had, which was in 2012, there was no such thing as a mobile ticket. So Airbnb existed, Uber existed. But there was no mobile ticket. There was no ability to explore and, and discover theater and art and culture on your phone. And so that was really the genesis of TodayTix was if we could create a great experience for consumers using technology, imagine the audiences that we could reach. So it seemed like in terms of um, when all these, you know, uh, uh, theater owners and the ad agencies are sitting around and thinking, okay, how can we get a a younger audience in there? Um, I guess the insight that you had just from how these TKTS booths were selling was, hey, actually younger people like the theater. Um, It's just that we're not actually able to, um, we're not, and we're actually probably going to be able to make more money from them um, because, you know, kind of like what, what you do is you're going to like deep discounting them um, for them, but there actually is demand there. We're just not kind of capturing that demand in the right way. And we're not actually seeing um, um, getting, um, getting to them in that kind of transact moment where they actually should be, which is, you know, maybe on their phone or, you know, don't want to deal with maybe uh, uh, paper tickets um, want to do paperless tickets. Um, And so was that, was that kind of part of the opportunity and kind of the aha moment there as well? Do you want to come work for me? That was a great pitch. That was exactly how we thought about it. It was was really this revelation that demand isn't always inextricably linked with price. Price is an important part of it, but price is only part of the equation, right? It's about this. This was a generation that was adoring and obsessing over beautiful mobile products. It was the start of the acceleration of the iPhone and the app phase. And so what we tried to do, one of our first values out of the gate was design first and design for the audience. So most ticketing companies always approached their business focusing on what the producers wanted, what the content creators wanted. Why? Because they hold all the cards. What we sort of said from day one was, Let's tell the content creators that with Today Ticks, if the audience wins, the producer will win. Because if the audience wins, they will buy the ticket. They will come back to the theater. And remember, for younger audiences, you might only see one show a year, two shows a year. So you have to have the data and the sophistication to be able to hold on to those consumers over a very long period of time. Um, and that's that's really at the heart of it. The The other piece was theater is a $9 billion industry in the US alone. It's, but if you combine it with opera, dance, performing arts, uh, it's about $16, $17 billion, which is twice the film 
box office. It's a little bit smaller than the sports and concert arena. And so you create this really interesting dynamic where theater is viewed as a small mom and pop business, but it's actually a commercial workhorse across the country. No, that's that's really interesting just in terms of how you're how you're thinking about the market um, as well. And, and what was kind of the old way in terms of ticket selling? Was it was it um, you you had it on your website uh, on the theater site and you had to kind of I, I guess pay through the desktop or obviously, you know, go to the venue and actually purchase the ticket. Was that typically how these um, um, how these theaters operated or was there already like a ticket master lurking or 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 somebody from those ends that would be kind of more competitive to you? Ticketmaster was certainly lurking. And it was something we were always wary of when we started the business. You know, you don't normally want to go into a market where you know you're competing with an 800-pound gorilla who's ambitious and and well-capitalized and, you know, all of those things. But our our belief was, so first of all, the, the theater industry, you're exactly right. It was concierges at hotels. It was the box office. It was the TKTS booth. It was um, travel agents, it was groups, it was schools, it was, and all of those things still exist today. But obviously, over the last decade that we've been around, it becomes more and more technologically sophisticated. Uh, but the real innovation for us back then, from just a this in its simplest sense, is you could go to a show's website, but that meant you only got the customers who wanted to see that show. And the truth is, only about 50% of people know what show they want to see. They're going to New York. They live in New York. They want to go uptown. They, they might see a musical. They might see a play. They might not even know that they like something. And so we basically enabled uh, what we call the ABCs, but we allowed a comprehensive list of all the shows to be on our app, whether it was Broadway, off-Broadway, uptown, downtown, uh, one week out, one day out. And so we really appealed, which no other ticketing company did at the time, and is still quite rare, where we created a marketplace where the shelves had everything stocked on it. You weren't going to a store with only one product. You were going to a store with all products. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I mean, I'm even thinking about it when I was growing up in DC when we when we were in New York. It's just we wanted to go to a Broadway play. You know, it's okay. We don't we didn't know which play we wanted to go to, but or or musical we wanted to go to, but we wanted to go to a Broadway musical, right? Um, and if it was one we knew, even better, right? But like that's what we wanted to do. So, um, so having like that kind of sense of discovery that. I'd imagine like a Ticketmaster really isn't like focused on that. That's really up to like, you know, if they're dealing mostly in, in music and concerts um, like that's or the sporting events, that's that's for them to kind of do the, do that promotion. And, to, and they don't have to actually make that make kind of the content around it. And so you all are saying, OK, this is more of like a sense of discovery and we're actually going to be kind of co-promoting it as well um, uh, to kind of and kind of aggregate that demand as as kind of a one stop shop. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's. Ticketing companies that, well, first of all, let's be honest, ticketing companies, especially before today ticks, but probably still to this day for a lot of people, ticketing companies are viewed as utilities at best, necessary evils at worst, right? Nobody's like, oh, I can't wait to go into my ticketing app, um, or I can't wait to go buy my ticket. And so we really wanted to spin that on its head from day one. And so I'm a big champion of what I call internally the six-star experience. So in theater, you can have a five-star review, but you can't have more than five stars. And what I sort of was thinking through with our team 
and we've always hired from outside of the theater world. I mean, we, we love the theater world, but we always wanted fresh perspective from the best of consumer tech, the best of B2B, the best of SaaS, the best of product development, the best of digital marketing. And so what we would do and work with our teams was, how do we earn that six star? How do we go above and beyond? So when we started, uh, most people thought it was a bit of a hacky stunt, but we actually had concierge agents who would meet you outside of your theater in Times Square and hand deliver your ticket to you before you went in. Now, of course, nowadays that's been replaced with a fully mobile ticket. But when I read our Apple reviews and our Trustpilot reviews and everything in between, people still longingly miss that human connection. And so everything we do is always trying to find what are the things that, that really remove friction and elevate the experience so that you have an emotional connection with your ticketing company? And in our case, you know, that's the Today Ticks group and its brands. No, totally. And I, that's really, really interesting how you thought about experience and, um, and making it you know, a very, very easy experience for, um, uh, for customers. How, how also, you know, back in the early days when you, you Merit, were uh, had this idea and maybe uh, uh, created like a, a beta and um, and and it had this mobile app idea. How did you convince these? Because um, of course you, you you need the shows, you need the tickets. How did you co- convince these theater owners um, um, to actually um, embrace um, mobile ticketing and then also have today ticks be the mobile provider? And as well as what was the structure? Was it that? every ticket needed to be on today ticks or only a certain few needed to be on today ticks. How did you all like, what was kind of like part of like the negotiation or, or, or how are you able to like kind of onboard them? So we have a value at today ticks that is find a way or make one. And it used to be something like disrupt, <laughs> but, but what we've learned is it's, it's got a little more finesse than that now, but it's find a way or make one. And what I'd say to you, Mike is, we didn't win them over out of the gate. You know, luckily it's a free market and we could create the opportunity and we could disrupt ourselves by building really amazing technology and marketing and brand. Um, but we had to go one theater at a time. Today we have more than 15,000 theaters and cultural institutions and we sell everything. If you're in a, if you're in a major city in the US, if you're in London, you're going to have an incredible time using TodayTix. But 10 years ago, it was theater by theater, partner by partner. Sometimes it was all inventory. Sometimes it wasn't. The one thing that we asked our partners for was a guarantee that it would be best in market pricing. It didn't need to be cheaper, but it had to be no more expensive than anything else in the market. Because we had seen with some of the secondary ticketing companies that you'd buy your ticket online. I remember my parents, right? They bought a ticket online. They thought it was a real ticket. It was but they thought they paid a fair price. And when they got to the theater and they got the ticket, they looked on it and they said, oh my God, we just paid a 180% markup on that ticket to a show that's not even the hottest show in town. And my view and, and Merritt's view early on was, if you do that enough to a customer, they'll go do something else. You know, I, I jokingly say to my team, uh, our competitor is not another ticketing company. Our competitors are Netflix and a pitcher of margaritas, right? It's the ability to do anything else with your time. It's not the theater goer. It's about what's a young person, what's an old person, what's a, what's a person of the world, what are they going to do with their night? And our job is to take away every excuse possible to say no 
to what we sell. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, how how also do you deal with um, you know scalpers or people that are buying in bulk in order to to resell? Like, what are you? I mean, obviously we we've we've um, we've seen this on, on on a few tours this year, at least in in, in music that have been pretty um, that that have really gotten the headlines um, with people kind of buying in bulk and then um, reselling it for and making outrageous amounts of money. But how how do you think about like this this question? So the good news is by always being pro-customer first, pro-audience, we just don't stand for that. We don't, we've never sold a ticket at a markup. We've, ne- we've built our technology to be anti-bot, uh, to be anti-broker, um, to not be a commercial engine for those to capitalize on, but to be for the audience, to be for the person who's going to actually put their butt in the seat and love the show, hate the show. It doesn't really matter what they think of the show, but that they're going to have an experience. And the good news is, and you asked earlier about the industry, while it's a very small industry, it's a great industry of people who have done this for their whole careers, who love it, who want to disrupt themselves and innovate and do what's right for the the next hundred years. You know, this is one of the oldest art forms in the world. And so, you know, culture and art and experiences, you know, we're all rooting for the same conclusion. So I'm very happy to say that we're one of a few players in the industry that can work elbow and elbow, arm in arm with uh, the the people who run the industry and, and help us protect it. How how also, I know that now you're in um, thousands upon thousands of theaters, and I'm sure you have theaters coming to you instead of you going to them saying, um, hey, we want to, you know, um, use your platform and everything, which is, you know, fantastic. And you're kind of being able to kind of aggregate that supply uh, since you have uh, demand, which is great. Um, but how in the early days, how did you also think about expansion um, and making sure was was it let's expand as quick as possible? Let's um, first really um, um, w- at, at what point, for example, in, in in New York, did you say, OK, now we can go to like an, a new market or a new region? Um, how did you think overall about growth? We were very precious about it for the first few years and then we let it rip, but let, let me come to that in a minute. So we were very, we were very precious about it in that, um, you've heard the phrase MVP. Everybody loves to talk about a minimum viable product and they celebrate it. And it's sort of, you know, they put it on their plaque above their desk and it's like the ethos of the teams. And I have a phrase that crosses that out, which is if it's too minimum, minimal to be viable, it's not a product. And so what we really spent the first few years doing was not letting perfect be the enemy of the good, but really building an amazing product, making sure that you could buy a ticket in 30 seconds or less, making sure that customer care could respond to you instantaneously, having that concierge experience, having the inventory that was priced in in a clear way and being transparent with fees and with, you know, look, I've never been a believer Um, that we could have no fees, right? That's not a viable business. So I've always said to my team, we're going to have fees, but we have to earn them. The customer always has to feel like that fee was worth so much more than not being able to buy through us. And so that took a few years to get that done. The next opportunity in 2015, uh, late 2015, was going to London. It made a ton of sense to go to London, right? It was the depending on how you want to look at it, the second or the first great theater city in the world. And and I'm not going to get in the middle of that. I'm not going to get in the middle of that debate, but 
but they're both exceptional markets, right? And they're both of a similar size and they both set the tone for the industry and for the commercial viability of the industry. And so we went to London and we launched there and I'll tell you, Mike, happily, and this is the power of scale and the power of a flywheel and a network effect. By the time we launched in London, we were no longer viewed as a ticketing company in the industry. We were viewed as a marketplace for demand. So we were known as a data company. We were known as a company and a partner that could go out and get the audiences and build lifetime value that would help the industry. So we launched in London in 2015, not theater by theater, but with the entire industry already signed up. And it was a really powerful opportunity. And, and we were sort of off into the races from there. When you expanded to to London, what were some of the differences in terms of maybe how like the industry is constructed? between Broadway and, and the West End? And was it, um, is it, is it quite similar? Is it, is, is it quite different? Um, I don't know if like, if it's more maybe, uh, uh, fragmented in London versus, um, uh, versus on Broadway or what were, what were, I guess, maybe also like some of the challenges when you, when you did expand to, to London? Early on, and there's, there's less discounting nowadays in the industry at large because there's dynamic pricing and we we're all smarter about how to navigate yield management and and how you can create value for a show but in the in the early days and dynamic pricing didn't really exist right prior to um today tick since since you weren't using you know like algorithms in order in order to 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 base your your ticket prices is that right yeah, it was it was fairly crude. There were some shows, you know, that were very good at it, um, but it was crude. It was sort of, oh, it's a Friday night, let's charge more. It wasn't algorithmically driven. Um, it's 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 come a long way, but I think that that the main difference is the industries are very similar from our lens, which is that audiences, fifty percent of audiences know what they want to see, and fifty percent of their audiences don't, and figuring out how to communicate and um, both through algorithms and through discovery, educate consumers to find a show that they might like. That's that's always been sort of the the, the challenge in all markets. But the the main difference was in the in the UK, um, home of Shakespeare. Um, in the UK, theater is a right. So as a result, pricing was always very affordable. It was always approachable. You could always get a ticket to a West End show for fifteen quid. That's been true before Today Ticks. It was true with Today Ticks. It's true today. Um, even the hottest shows in the West End, you can get an affordable ticket. In New York, theater has always been more of a luxury product. It's not to say that there aren't amazing access initiatives, but it's always been a little more elusive. And so Today Ticks has always tried to straddle that divide to offer. And, and remember, when we started, we were day of. A year later, we became week of. We now sell tickets a year out. We sell all price points. We sell uh, the most expensive ticket in the front row to the least expensive ticket, which might also be in the front row if it's through one of our lotteries or our rush programs. So everything we do is about working with the producer and the audience to figure out that sweet spot for demand and viability for the show. At what point did you need to raise capital and what was, and what was the, how did you think about who were the right partners to part with? I know that both you and, and Merritt both kind of came from the finance world, um, uh, uh, PE and, um, and what, um, 
investment banking with with Merit, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, so what how um what was what was your strategy for for raising money? So my mentor, and I'm happy to say a friend, is is Danny Meyer, the great restaurateur in New York. And um, and it's and it's also my favorite business book. <laughs> Again, business school crash course is, is Danny's Setting the Table, which I which I reread every every year or two. And there's something Danny said to me, uh, which I've which I've often quoted. And it's it's not rocket science, but that's sort of the magic of Danny is he says everything in such an accessible way that's like, oh, why did I not think of that? And it was, you get to choose who's at your dinner table. And I thought that was really powerful because so often as a young entrepreneur, and remember that we were a theater ticket company. That's well, we thought we were a data and demand tech company in a marketplace. Investors and VCs thought we were a theater ticketing company. So they weren't racing to invest in us early on. And so you'd think that we would have basically had to do whatever we had to do to raise money. But instead, I thought about Danny's words. And I went to a group of investors who had known me and supported me in my traditional career, if you want to call it that, my pre-entrepreneurial career. And I went to them and I said, look, it's 10 guys, it's $50,000, 10 people, uh, $50,000 each. And uh, we're going to try to disrupt a really archaic industry. And I can't promise you it's going to work, but we have a very clear vision of what the impact of this product will be if we do it. And we think that it will help communities. We think it will help cities. We think it will drive great revenue. We think it'll be a, a transformational data business. Um, and I'll tell you, we made 10 phone calls and we got 10 yeses. And that was $500,000. And it got us basically through, you know, what most people would call the bootstrap phase, but it basically got us through building a product having enough capital to drip it into the market. We're, we're actually 10 years almost to the day of when we're speaking right now of when the beta was, was live. And within three months, we knew it was going to work. And then we started to sharpen our pencils on, okay, how are we going to capitalize this? What's value add? How do we go to the venture community and, and really start to piece this together? What was kind of growing through, obviously, Personally, you know, everyone was was deeply affected um, uh, personally from it. Um, professionally, I, and, and obviously, a lot of uh, many people were affected professionally from it. I'd imagine your business was very affected from it. What was kind of going through your mind professionally in March 2020? We had just acquired February 2020 for our biggest deal we had ever done. We had just acquired an international travel, tourism, and ticketing business called Encore Tickets in London. And I was sitting in London meeting the team, feeling on top of the world. We were, I mean, February of 2020, every business was up 100% year over year. All of our brands were up 100% year over year. We were crushing it. We were making money. Like, it was amazing. And then my CTO uh, who, had, who was in London had left and he was heading to the airport. He got on the plane. It was a Virgin flight. And he texted me and a few of our colleagues or he slacked, he actually slacked us a photo from the plane. And there was nobody else on the plane. This was March, maybe March 5th of 2020. And we all looked at each other and I, I'll never forget the drink I was having, the hotel bar we were in, the conversation. I know exactly where I was. 
And I looked at everyone and I said, this is going to be worse than we think. It's going to last longer than we think. And we've got to get home and buckle up. And we went home. Um, and again, remember, the industry hadn't shut down yet. The, the world hadn't shut down yet. But we shut down our, we, we actually shut down our office early. We were, we were a bit ahead of the curve, I would say. We shut our office down. And I said to, to the whole team, I said, guys, something doesn't sniff right. And I think we should expect some sort of avalanche coming in the theater world. But don't think about that. I said, try to think about you, your families, your communities, whatever you need to do to prioritize you, do that. Know that we have exceptional investors. We have world-class investors. At this point, we had brought in great help partners who are just unbelievable capital partners and, and have been true stewards end-to-end. Uh, -end. Um, and I said, we're going we're gonna to get through it. Take, take a beat. And about three days later, the industry shut down. Broadway was, as I like to say, the first to close and the last to reopen. It was closed for well over 18 months. And we went not only to zero revenue, Mike, we went to negative revenue because of course we had tens of millions of dollars of tickets that we had sold for shows that were no longer going to happen. So we had sort of a, a trifecta, which was we had no revenue. We had an industry that couldn't be salvaged because the government had told us you are done. And we then had a new acquisition that we had brought together and, and we were just looking over the cliff, but I'll, I'll tell you what gave me solace. And if I could offer one piece of advice, which, you know, no one asks for, but if I could offer one piece of advice to either younger me or a, or a consumer CEO, no matter how much success you have, don't underestimate the power of a brand and don't ever give up on your brand. And because we weren't just a ticketing company to our millions of customers at that point, but we were a part of their cultural discovery engine. We were, they were proud of us. They would, you know, how often do you see someone posting on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter about a ticketing company? But, but our audiences were actually, they were out there posting about us. They were out there wanting us to make it. And so, you know, by the, by the great grace of our audiences and our employees during that period, we actually not only doubled down, we quadrupled down during the pandemic. We built products and integrated and innovated. And oh my goodness, we, we had just a dynamic two years and it was emotional and it was hard, but it was really energizing to be in the trenches with our team through that. Wow. That's, um, it's amazing to have a fanatical base and your ticketing company. That's, that's, um, that's unbelievable. And also talk a little bit about in terms of like doubling and quadrupling down and introducing more, uh, new products. How then did you think about revenue? Um, how did you think about like opportunities when it come, when it came to, when, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's in-person events that you're, um, uh, that you're, you know, um, uh, giving tickets to, and obviously a, a sort of discovery for those tickets or those events. So many people say when the industry zigs, you zag, but everyone was zagging to streaming. And I just said, no, I said, streaming's great. It's amazing. But I believe that the value of 
culture. And, and again, we've grown beyond theater. So we're not, we're, we're theater, we're performing arts, we're attractions, we're experiences, we're immersive. We're, we're all of the, we're not sports and we're not big concerts, but we're everything else that you might do in a city. And we like to think of ourselves sort of as like your cultural concierge. And so I just had this belief and, and Merritt had shared this belief. We, we just were unwavering that part of, and I, I don't mean to be crude here, but part of the medicine, not of COVID, but of coming out of the pandemic, part of the medicine is going to be community. And I know it feels hard to see that right now. I was saying to this team, like, I know it's hard to see that right now because we're not allowed to be together. We have to be four feet away or six feet away or wearing masks and this and that. But, and I, I said, there will be some audiences that will never come back. And that's been true. There are audiences that have not come back to the theater. But there have been so many new audiences that have come back to the theater, so many new audiences that have come to the theater, so many people who want to fall in love with a new city that they're in or a new place to travel. And so that's really sort of the, the key thing for me is just not have thought about the revenue we had then, but having the confidence to know that our revenue would for sure rebound to where it was. And if we played our cards right and we built the right products and we solved the problems that we saw, and, and for us, that's always loyalty. We're always focused as a business on the loyalty of our consumers. So what can we build? What products, what services, what inventory, what partnerships can keep you coming back into our funnel and continuing to love us and trust us with your money um, and your time? More valuable than your money is your time, your night out. Um, and so that's what we did during the pandemic. It wasn't about revenue. It was about a a commitment that it would it would always come back. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Oh, wow. Such a great question. Well, I, I already said my uh, professional one, which is Danny Meyer setting the table. Although I will tell you, and I don't want this to be a freebie, but it it also is a personal manifesto in a way too. And how I met Danny is I read the book and I sent him an email and I complimented him on the book, of course, but I, I said to him, as a young entrepreneur, what's most impressed me is despite your success, you talk about your wife and your kids with so much love in this book. You, you can tell reading it, even though it's a business book by all intents and purposes, you can tell that his family is the North Star in the anchor of all of his success, being authentic, being genuine, being true to, true, to, true, to, true to purpose. And so I sent him that. And I gotta tell you, he wrote back. And we met, we met at Maialino, uh, one of his restaurants, we met at Maialino and we had this fantastic um, coffee at the time. And I talked to him about that. And that was the beginning of this amazing journey for me about being a complete leader. I have two young kids. I have an amazing wife and a big dog and, and showing my team that you can work your tail off and we work hard. I mean, we, we, we have an, an exacting culture, but also knowing when and how to unplug. And so that really has been a North star for me. No, I, um, that's, that's an amazing story. Um, and that's awesome that you've, uh, uh, been able that, that, uh, that, that came into a relationship with, with Danny. That's, um, uh, that's amazing. Um, and also I, I appreciate you sharing how you think about leadership. How, 
how do you think as well? I feel like as companies are growing, growing very fast as 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 you did with uh, today ticks. Um, what's always what's always difficult is hiring the right people, um, and and making sure you have you know the right people on a team. And and I would love to know how you and Merit thought about hiring at kind of like the different stages of today ticks. So. I've talked a few times in our chat here about our values because I think a lot of companies create values, but they don't obsess over them. <laughs> and we obsess over them. And as even when I was a, a, whether I was a, when I was an investor, let's say, I don't know if it was a, I was private equity or venture, you know, whatever the lines blur. But when I was an investor, I was, you know, an early investor in Sweetgreen and Outdoor Voices and Sir Kensington's and, you know, all these great brands. And what I think separates the wheat from the chaff are, are companies whose purpose and values resonate and are authentic and are non-negotiable. And so the reason I say that is um, one of our values, uh, which is a, quote, well, someone quoted me on it years ago and we, we sort of, it became lore is let your experience inform you, but not confine you. And so when we started hiring people, we hired a bunch of generalists. Why? Because in a startup, you might only have four people or 10 people or 15 people, and you need people who don't say no. It's taking out the trash. It's going to do a, a consumer survey. In our case, it was hand delivering a ticket. If somebody called out on Christmas, you still have to make sure somebody's Christmas isn't ruined. And so that's the start. Then you move into, you sort of overcorrect and you go to hyper subject matter experts where they only see straight lines. They only see zeros and ones in what they love to do. What I learned midway through that phase is that that's great. It's critical. It's what you need. We still do that today. We hire the best in their fields. But what I've learned is there's two types of experts. There's experts who are the smartest people in the room, know it and tell you. And there's the smartest people in the room who just take their experience and they let it inform how they operate, but they don't restrict themselves. They don't, they don't talk down to people. They don't close doors. They don't say no because. They say no, but how about this? Or they say not just yes, but yes, and we could also add this to it. And so over the last few years, we've really worked with our people team and with our, with our managers to build a company of curious, tenacious people who are experts, but only to get in the door. Once you're in the door, we're all even. Got it. No, that's um, I I I always love hearing about um, company values and and how you all think about also doing business with with other people because because of, of course it's also them a representation of of you all and um and so how you also when you actually hire um do your 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 interviews and and uh and and especially er, the the earlier days because imagine now it's probably hr or or what have you but um but it, it, in kind of the early days how how did you um were there particular questions that you like to ask or how did you how did you think about um kind of weeding people out based on making sure they had like the right values you were looking for so Merit and I used to tag team and Merit asks the really decisive intellectual questions that get at like a person's horsepower. And I was always the fluffy culture person at the end. And I would always ask 
a few different things. Um, but one is I would ask your last direct report, what's the toughest thing they'd say on your report card? And if somebody would say to me, oh, that I work too hard, I would say, eh, try again. And they would say, oh, I care too much. Eh, try again. And by the third time, if a person couldn't give me a real introspective lens into who they were and how the things they wanted to work on as a human being, I really wasn't interested because we're all we're all works of art that are yet in yet completed. Um, and so I really want to know that I'm working with people who aspire to be better. Um, the second thing I would say is if you were in my shoes, what's the first thing you would change about our business? And you'd be surprised how many people didn't even know about our company. They hadn't even really, they knew the high level, but they'd sort of say, oh, well, I wouldn't sell tickets today. And I'd say, well, that's funny because we sell tickets 365 days a year. Um, and, and you'd catch these people. And, and you sort of realize that the truly gifted people show up every day and they show up to their interview the same way they're going to show up to their experience um, working. And so that, that's really how we would think about it. And then of course, I always just ask, what are your hobbies? Because I like to know what motivates you beyond the professional context so that we can make sure we can have a little bit of fun during what's going to be a wild ride. That's great. That's great. Really appreciate that. Um, Brian, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been great. And there you have it. It was a pleasure time with Brian. I hope you all enjoyed listening. If you love the show, please consider subscribing to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.